I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmine Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. Today's episode is how to create healthy relationship dynamics and communicate clearly with Sylvie Hugasian. She's a relationship coach and a writer, and her heart mission is to support people in being deeply and soulfully self-connected and to use their self-awareness to create relationships that feel both nourishing and supportive. And I recently took her course on boundaries, which you should all check out. I think it should be like required (laughs) listening for everyone. And I just found it to be incredibly helpful as we navigate this world of what it means to have healthy boundaries. So welcome to the show, Sylvie. Thank you so much. I'm so, so honored to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, Sylvie, just to kick it off, um, you have a course on boundaries, which I recently took, and I'd love to just first define what is a boundary and how do we create healthy boundaries? Mm. So boundaries are basically their limitations that we we set, that we vocalize, we communicate um, in order to protect our integrity and our well-being. And that can be anything from our emotional boundaries, physical boundaries, spiritual boundaries, and intellectual boundaries. And it can take a long time to kind of figure out what those boundaries are going to be for each person. But oftentimes when I'm working with my clients, um, I often support them to really pay attention to the areas that they um, were vulnerable to in their their past or things where they were maybe hurt by or situations they might be drawn towards that could hurt them and to be really mindful of any feelings of anger, overwhelm, and resentment so that they can start vocalizing what their needs are in their relationships. Amazing. And so, um, you know, let's say uh, I'm in a relationship or we can give an example of someone that's in a relationship that has Um, difficulty with, you know, something that makes them uncomfortable. Is there like a specific way to communicate that, that, you know, I think sometimes it feels when we communicate our boundaries, we can over index or under index Mm -hmm. on uh, clearly stating what we want um, without the other person feeling attacked. Uh, Like kind of whose responsibility is it to sort of set the right boundary? I love that you're diving right into that because I think especially right now in, you know, what I've been experiencing on social media is this very rigid way of using boundaries as this end all be all, um, almost like entitled way that can be very not relational. And so much of my work is yes, getting in touch with your own, um, your own needs, your own sensitivities, your own sense of self, but also how to do that in a way that bridges with people and invites them into, um, to creating a relational container that feels safe and nourishing for everybody involved. So what that would look like in a practical way is you said it perfectly, right? We don't want to attack someone else. We don't want to shame them. We don't want to put them down. Really, most people are often 
unknowingly uh, injuring our boundaries or violating boundaries. And especially if you have people from different cultures, that is a whole nother story, right? So, hey, I wanted to bring up this, this thing that I'm really sensitive about. You know, sometimes when you make this kind of comment, it, it, feels, it feels hurtful for me and this is something I'm really sensitive about. If you can please be mindful of that in the future, you know, so it's, you are being authentic and vulnerable in that expression. And then you also get to you get to see how somebody is able to really hear that and and meet you on the other end. That doesn't mean that they don't get to have a response, right? They get to, maybe they feel rejected or they feel like they did something wrong. You can always offer reassurance and comfort and sensitivity after you set a boundary, but the boundary allows you actually to oftentimes be more loving and caring with exceptions, obviously, if someone's being abusive or really violating towards you. Mm, wow. And uh, what about, you know, if the other person just feels attacked, uh, even if you say it nicely, like, cause I think that, I mean, I can kind of speak for California mm-hmm. <laughs> where I feel like there's a lot of, lot more sensitivity in California than there is in New York where I spent almost, um, 13 years. And I just find that to be such an interesting topic. Like what, you know, mm-hmm. when you communicate your needs, um, and the other person is defensive or finds or shuts down or avoids, um, you know, how do you sort of, how do you still push people towards this like relational container? That's such a, such a great question. And I, again, I love that you're bringing up the cultural component, right? Even, even places you live have their own cultural vibration, right? The East coast is very direct. We get to the point, you know, we kind of communicate things just more like overtly, you know, whereas some places they might need a little bit more massaging, a little bit more sensitivity, (laughs) you know, California can have a little bit of a hippie vibe. So there's just, there's different ways of, you know, speaking these things. And when you set a boundary and you notice that in someone, you might not have that conversation that same day, but maybe later on you, you explore that, you get curious about that. You know, I noticed when I communicated that boundary with you, um, yesterday, I, I kind of got the sense that you were feeling some things. I might be wrong. Again, we never want to just impose what we think about someone because we might be off. Um, and then just exploring that with them. Is there something that you need to hear from me that might be helpful? Or when I use that word boundary, which I'm not a fan of in general, by the way, Yasmin, I don't like people <laughs> using that word because I think it's it can be very triggering and it can bring up people's defenses in general. Um, but just getting curious, like, did that bring up anything for you? Or is there anything you need reassurance from me about? It's like the boundary gives can give you permission and space to offer more of those things. But the other person is also responsible, right? If they have this really profound experience of rejection and they're not willing to really talk about it or face it or explore what that might be about, there's nothing you can really do to help them kind of see what's going on for them if they're shut down or in a really guarded place within themselves. Does that make sense? Mm, yes, yes, yeah. And so you you kind of have to meet people right where they are and... Um, and in some cases, that just means when you set a boundary, another person might not um, accept that. Uh, and, and that's okay too. But in most cases, uh, do you find that people are able to set healthy boundaries you know, right away? Like how, how long does this work actually take to be able to set healthy boundaries? Oh God, no. I wish people can embrace them right away. I feel like most people, I think boundaries need repetition. I think if you're engaging with someone that is in the self-development world, they'll have an under, they'll have an automatic understanding of what we're talking about. But most people, I remember I did a, I did a live, um, I did a live talk somewhere and one of the, one of the participants asked me, my grandmother, who's like 85 years old, does not understand my boundaries. I was like, (laughs) yeah, well, she comes from a different generation. You know, she was from a very communal culture where everyone supports each other. And, you know, here in America, in the West, where it's very individualistic minded, everyone is kind of a lot more solo functioning in their, in their relating to other people. And all of those things impact the perception of boundaries. If I set a boundary, for example, all of a sudden where I don't have as much capacity as I used to, and I can't see a close friend as often as we were hanging out. So I'm setting a new boundary, a new 
a new way of relating to this person. Of course, that other person might have feelings about it. You know, of course, they might feel hurt, sad. They might have to grieve that relationship. And sometimes I do think it's important to look for, okay, does this relationship potentially need a compromise, right? Mm. Does it need to a, a new a negotiation where I also push myself a little bit outside of my boundary, not to the point where I'm harming myself, of course, and th- so that the other person also understands that their needs are important too. Mm-hmm. Again, this is this is not going to be the case if someone is using disrespectful language and you're setting a boundary. That's not something you negotiate on, right? That's like, no, no, no. We don't talk to each other like this. I might get curious about them, like, help me understand your family system. Maybe talking to your, you know, each other was, this is, was normal, but this is not going to be okay for me. There's not really, uh, I wouldn't in- encourage negotiation in those kind of situations, but like, you know, you, can you see the difference between those two kinds of things? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and I actually want to dive a, a little bit into something you said, because I think this, this part is important. Like, you know, and I love, I love the idea of communicating your boundaries clearly and getting curious. Um, but you talk about in one instance, like how a safe relational container, like that tension, right. Can sometimes push people towards patterns of avoidance because they may not know how to manage with the depth of mirroring and vulnerability that intimate relationships often come with. So, you know, we, we sort of have talked about boundaries kind of loosely, but I think in the space of relationship, right, and in particular, like the intimacy, the container that gets squeezed, mm-hmm. I think that to me is like so juicy because I think there's nothing like it, right? Like it's not mm-hmm. like any relationship you're going to have with your family. Um, it's not like any relationship you're going to have with your friendships, your, your friends or your coworkers. I mean, that intimate romantic relationship, I think, brings up so much, right? So much vulnerability. And, you know, and so why does those, why do those spaces actually push people you know, more towards these patterns of avoidance and how can you kind of, um, you know, what do you, what do you sort of teach people to do to sort of move out of that or to get, to kind of get curious about their, their own, um, inner vulnerability? Hmm. Such, such a great question, Yasmin. I love it. Um, it's a really big theme that comes up a lot, actually, in my work when people are finally in a relation, romantic relationship with someone that they feel really safe with, maybe a few years down the line. They're like, what happened? I was feeling great, and now things are starting to come up for me, and I, I feel like I can't handle it, and I want to run away from this relationship. Well, one thing that happens is that our when our nervous system starts to feel really relaxed and when we get past that honeymoon phase that romantic phase with someone we start to automate the people we're in relationship with meaning we start to our brain wants to save as much resources as possible and it starts to relate to people in the same way we related to people from our past family of origin, whether that's our parents, our siblings, whoever was in like the, the core of our lives. And that could also be adult, adult relationships. And so if we have any unresolved things, which who doesn't, who doesn't have some unresolved things that, you know, that we haven't faced or really dealt with, or we don't have the skills to really regulate difficult emotions, some people are going to want to run away from that, right? And it's not like, and we can blame the relationship when in reality, it's it's our own inability sometimes to navigate what's happening. It's not always the case. And I want to make that disclaimer, right? Sometimes you're having this reaction because there's something really harmful happening in the relationship. But if the person is a genuinely safe and loving presence and you have an aligned vision and you guys want the same things and you're having all these intense emotions, this is where I really push people to go and get support and learn about yourself and what is happening so that you can use the relationship as a reparative place to heal some of these previous unresolved issues. Mm, Wow. That's so powerful. I love that. And I think that's, yeah, it's so interesting because I do find that a lot of people sort of, um, you know, in, in the context of romantic relationships, when things get tough is actually when you really, and also how couples repair, it's really kind of how you, how you sort of, um, see the, the sort of the, the resonance and like the longevity of the relationship, right? It's not in the good times necessarily, but it's in like how you deal with conflict, right? Which is, which is inevitable, right? Like I think, I think, um, in some cases people think like any kind of conflict is unnatural. Um, and I think that that sort of just needs to be told 
you know, as a, as a not, as a non-truth, right. It's just, there's, mm -hmm. there is conflict in all relationships. Um, and I think, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Like, how do you deal with conflict in, let's say your own relationship mm -hmm. or with people that you work with? Um, and then, you know, what, what does feel like a normal amount of conflict? What feels like healthy, uh, in relationships? Like, you know, could you have a relationship with very little conflict, for example? Mm, uh, absolutely. There's such a range of, conflict styles there's high conflict con con high conflict relationships there's low conflict relationships you know what oftentimes what we learned in our family system is what we replicate and duplicate and that's our kind of go to when we're under stress i also want to say you know this is where edu relational education is so important right so when somebody is in that honeymoon phase of a relationship um our our chemicals are allowing us to override a lot of our stuff a lot of our difficult stuff. And when we cross over into the second stage where we're starting to automate someone, that's when the, these more conflicts, we're starting to, you know, um, get into a power, power struggle dynamics, which is all normal. And I think that's, that, that's why, like, I'm such a, advocate for the educational piece, because I think so many couples, when I work with them, most of the time they're looking at me and just like wanting to know, am I normal? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you said, how much conflict is okay. And we're all looking at each other. Nobody knows what the heck they're really doing. Everyone's trying to figure things out the best they can. But I remember there was a quote that I came across by uh, Dr. John Gottman, that the research that says, you know, he studied couples for over you know, 30, 30 years, three plus decades. And it was that 69% of conflicts within couples are unresolvable. Wow. <laughs> that blew my mind. Because it's like, you can literally fight over the same thing over and over and over again. But when your brain knows, okay, we don't actually have to solve this, but this is just something that's important to know about each other and to get underneath. Every time you get into a fight, it's an opportunity to get to know your partner or your friend more intimately. And I think that's where people get lost. They don't do the repair work. Mm. So they'll have the fight, but they don't come back and say, you know what? This fight, this is what the fight brought up for me. This is what I realized about myself. And this is what is familiar about my, my past that I'd like to do differently. Or this is a value I'm realizing that's important for me. Or I, I mean, I'm, I want to stand up about this thing. Or I want to take responsibility for the way that I spoke to you yesterday because that was not okay. And I totally see it. So there's so much rich information, right? But some people don't want to do that part. And so they get stuck. They don't use the conflict as an opportunity to work through um, better understanding themselves and each other. And over time, you know, some people just get so flooded and overwhelmed by conflict that they, they exit the relationship. Mm, right, right. And I think also, I, I remember reading um, with the Gottman research, which that's mind-blowing, 69% of conflict it? is unresolvable. <laughs> um, but the, the part about like just holding grudges and resentment, um, I think that piece to me is really interesting because like how quickly you repair from conflict is everything and it being a, in a pro-relational space. But the idea of like holding grudges and, and harboring resentment, even if there is a conversation where both parties have spoken and shared their sentiments, you know, that to me is, is an interesting thing that I've seen as well. Absolutely. And, and if, if one person's, if there's not space for, you know, whether it's a two person relationship or multiple people in a relationship, if there's not space for everyone's needs, then it's understandable why resentment can build. And sometimes just taking the time to understand what is it? Am I not communicating? Like, am I not repairing? Am I not expressing what's happening for me? So I think what you're bringing up is really interesting because there's so many reasons that can contribute to a, a resentment potentially um, being extended, not feeling heard, maybe not being able to communicate what's actually happening about ourselves and therefore getting stuck in that resentment too. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Sylvia, you talk about in uh, your boundary course, and this for me was so transformational, the, the difference between a request versus a requirement and why so many people confuse these terms so much. So can you tell us like, what is the difference between a request and a requirement in relationship? And what's like an example um, that you can give us? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that this is one of the modules in the course that a lot of people have come to me um, 
experiencing that it was like mind blowing as well. So there's something about the clarity that it offers between the two different things. So a request is something that you would really like to happen in your relationship, but it is not a must have. There can be space for compromise and negotiation here. Whereas a requirement is a must have, like for example, no name calling, or let's say a requirement for me to feel safe in this relationship is that we're not going to share certain private information that we're agreeing about with other people. And so if those patterns continue after we make an agreement in the relationship, the person is not going to feel safe in the relationship. Whereas let's say a request is, um, when I get home from work, I just need a little bit of time for myself before I can engage in connection. You know, some days I might really want that and other days I might not need that as much. Or let's say that's really triggering for you to not have at least a connection point right when we check in. So there's, there's, there's a little bit more nuance to, to figure out a way that really works for everybody involved. Whereas a requirement is, I literally will not feel safe my integrity will almost be violated if we continue a certain behavior or pattern. I'm trying to think of another practical one for you. Um, Another requirement is how we're going to engage with other people outside of a relationship. Uh, Flirting is often one that I I work Mm. with a lot in romantic couples. Like what flirting feels like for one person might be completely different for the other person. And coming up with like an agreement so that, you know, there's a sense of safety for, um, for the relationship is one of the things that can sometimes be a requirement that's built in. Does that make mm. sense? Yes. Yes. I love that. I love these examples. <laughs> They're so I know. Great. I'm very I'm much of the same. I, I learn by examples as well. So I'll try to give as many as I can. Oh yeah. They're so great. And I think just like the, the language that we're using to describe like something that's like a non-negotiable versus something that's like a, a a request, which is like a nice to have. I prefer this. I think in the course, I think you mentioned, I I could be making this up, but I I vaguely remember you (laughs) mentioning that, um, you know, in one example, it was like someone's a smoker. Right. Mm. And, uh, that was like a requirement for someone who was just like, you know what, I just don't date smokers. And so I, you know, and that's, that's kind of like off the table for me where, you know, in some cases it could be like, I prefer not to date smokers and it's okay. You know, I'll put up with it, but I would, it's not my preference. It's not, you know, a requirement. So it's just, it's really important because I think many people in relationships kind of conflate the two. It's like, you know what, Mm. this is not working for me. But then on this, on the scale, we don't know out of like a one to 10, you know, what's not like how, how much of a weight are we assigning to something that's not working for you? Absolutely. And, and being really mindful of your tendency, you know, some people can be really rigid with these kinds of things and have a, when, you know, when I work with singles, especially that are dating, they could have a list of all of these requirements that it's not really realistic in a partner. You're going to have to find some areas where you can tolerate and be a little bit uncomfortable and hold on to a few things. Maybe there's like two or three things that you have that are your requirement you must have. And then, every relationship is going to have a set of challenges that are 69% unresolvable, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, 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 right. Absolutely. That's so, wow, it's profound. And you actually teach this course with your partner, Brian, correct? Yes, I do. Which I love. Mm -hmm. So, so awesome. And you guys have kind of tested, uh, or, you know, your own relationship has been kind of like a case study, right? For a lot of the things that you've you've come up with for for this course, which I thought was so wonderful and enlightening. Mm. Yeah. Every time we create a course together, we go through our own transformational process. (laughs) 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 It is very challenging, I will say. And it really does force us to address things and just kind of see how we each work and function so differently. And now we've figured out a way to, to, to do it, to collaborate in ways that just work better for us. And it's just interesting how every time we create one of these things, it's like, oh yeah, what are the boundaries we need to make this course and not kill each other? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you communicate that from the beginning. That's really awesome. Oh no, not from the beginning when we're knee knee deep in and it's messy and we're fighting and we're like, we need to change some things to create this course together to make ourselves, you know, to make space for both of our needs and and how to do it in a way that works for each of us. I wish we had the clarity right from the beginning, but we're learning. We're we're seven (laughs) years in and we're still learning. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Amazing. 
<laughs> I love that. Wow. And so, um, Sylvia, I want to talk a little bit about your background and like the cultural differences that you have noticed when it comes to relating to others in a romantic relationship. Mm. Um, so I know, you know, from the course, I remember reading that you were born in Syria, you're of Armenian um, descent. You also spent time in a lot of other countries in the Middle East. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm Iraqi American and I can say like, I, you know, have found my own set of uh, cultural norms and even conversational styles and what feels appropriate and, and non-appropriate in relationships. Mm -hmm. It's kind of confusing, you know, when you try to translate that in, in the West. And so I'd love, I'd love for you to talk about like, what are some of the cultural differences that you personally experience and also what you've noticed when it comes to romantic relationships? <laughs> Mm, this is definitely the question I was I was excited to explore. Just even just talking about cultural differences because I think it's such a big theme. I mean, just within myself, I'm Armenian. My family was born and raised in Syria, but then I was born in Saudi Arabia, and then I moved to the U.S. when I was four. So, like, just in my own brain, like navigating all of these differences, like what is my identity? How do I relate to my Armenian side, but my, my Arabic side, but I'm American. And I, you know, so all of the personal identity questions and, and contradictory experiences I've had to navigate. And then I meet my husband who's American and he has such a different way of seeing things. And so it's given me a lot of empathy for, um, I think more than anything, just the ability to tolerate and hold differences in your relationships and to understand that it's not necessarily about solving anything. It's just about learning and getting curious about those differences and not making anyone wrong for their unique way of seeing things, right? So I'll give you a couple practical themes that I've noticed come up a lot in intercultural relationships. One of them is just the way that holidays and milestones are celebrated. You know, one culture might be really extravagant and um, highlight certain communal things, especially, you know, the difference between communal cultures versus individualistic cultures. They can be radically different in the way that they celebrate things. Um Another one is approaches towards sexuality, you know, whether it's more conservative or approaching it from a much more fully self-expressed sexual orientation. Um, but the one that surprised me the most in my relationship, and it takes a lot of humility to own this, <laughs> is as like, I'm a relationship coach. I'm, I'm, I think I'm empathic. I'm all of these things that I, you know, I've worked so hard to become but it was so hard to read my partner's face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, there was so much misunderstanding and um, projection and not really, and misreading him because, you know, when you grow up in a certain culture, like even in New York culture, right? You, you live there, the East Coast, you can kind of start to read the way people emote things on their face. And it's like, you can, you can take that in, in a way that starts to feel very organic and natural. But if you're dating someone that has a completely different cultural background, their facial experience and what they're going through is going to be presented in a different way. And it could take a long time to start to develop the ability to read people. I mean, I'm seven years in and I feel like I'm finally turning the corner and I'm like, are you feeling this way? And he's like, no, I'm not, Sylvie. I was like, okay, what are you feeling? <laughs> like, talk about humility, right? Because I'm like, wow, I'm like wrong 90% of the time. What is going on here? You know? But the education, that's what I mean, why it's so important to normalize. There's nothing wrong with me or him. It's just we come from different cultures and we, those facial recognition detectors, they've been, you know, they've been cultivated over thousands and thousands of years within a culture, you know? Mm, yes. Yeah. And, you know, the Middle East is, I think, much more expressive. I'm just yes. you know, speaking generally. Um, yes. I've noticed that as well. Like people, you know, used to even come to my house and be like, why is everyone so loud? And like, <laughs> you know, what's going on? Is someone upset at someone? Is there, and I'm like, oh no, like, you know, someone's having like a birthday party celebration. They're just congratulating them, you know, but it just mm. feels so um, loud and almost like, you know, what's the word? Yeah. Just like, almost like too expressive compared to mm -hmm. like Western mm -hmm. expression. And so that's been very kind of an area of misunderstanding, I think, in, um, in many it's relationships. 
It's a big one. Is, are there any others for you that you've noticed in relationships with other romantic partners or friends? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think, um, uh, well, I will just kind of anecdotally say, I think American culture, especially California culture is, I think this on the range is way different than even New York. Like my mm. time in New York, I think expression was considered healthy and, uh, important and being very direct was really important. Being honest and authentic in one's mm. own experience uh, was just sort of a way of life. Uh, I do feel that it's pretty similar in the Middle East. Growing up, like we didn't have secrets. We were fully we're, we were a fully expressed family. And I think um, you know, in California, I've had to really learn how to say things in a way that felt good for others and, mm. um, and, you know, almost like over index on that. I do find it disappointing in some cases when there is a lot of judgment towards, mm. um, cultures that are louder. Um, you know, and, and it's just interesting because I just think everyone's really wired differently and what, what feels good for, for one person might not feel good for another, but, you know, I generally do feel more comfortable in places where I can fully be expressed and express myself. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of gotten to the point in my life where I don't really want to censor my full self. Um, and I, and I do think, you know, this is just my anecdotal kind of, you know, reflections on this because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I don't. I, I think that there's actually a lot of, of, what's the word, room for way more expression of self in an American culture that I think is actually contributing to the crisis in depression, in lack of energy, in lack of, you know, just um, joy and wonder and curiosity. Like, I'm, I'm not going to suppress those pieces of myself. I just, I think you know, and I think that there is, especially for women, a desire for, for women to play small, um, and, and, you know, and, and, uh, expression and, and words are so powerful that they are potent. And I think people can feel scared from that, you know, over the centuries, of course, we're scared of power, right. Especially, you know, Absolutely. when people can convey themselves powerfully, but, um, yeah, so it's just been an interesting kind of exploration of like, how do we dance so that we can make sure people feel safe, but also it is also the the other person's responsibility to um, become emotionally resilient. Mm. It's not, it's not my mm. responsibility in hundred percent, but it's also another person's responsibility to, to sort of, you know, take, meet me halfway at least, let's put it that way. <laughs> Totally. To, to widen our own emotional vocabulary, capacity, and just to make space for the, the breadth of emotions. You know, one of the ways I, one of the things I bring up is, as far as like the experience of grief, you know, I've been to Middle Eastern funerals where, I mean, my husband and I talk about this all the time and people are wailing, they are grieving, they are allowing themselves to fully feel the grief of a loss. And there's such a powerful communal experience that happens, I think, in communal cultures in general. I mean, when I go to, um, you know, just different cultures that don't are not as tapped into that potential grief that's there, I do think that can absolutely create a disconnect or this inability to fully get to express what is wanting to be expressed. When when my husband and I first met, he said the reason he chose me, one of the reasons he was really drawn to me was my depth of emotion. And it's also the thing that's the hardest for him. Mm. But it's the thing that he yearns for so deeply to connect to himself. I mean, he was in the military for 10 years on top of it. So talk about like having to cut off from so much of that emotional range. He's like, I've never cried so much in my life, Sylvie, as I have being with you. And I like it that it's such a beautiful thing, you know, like that he gets to feel more of himself and really that is what he wants to lean into. And like you said it, people have to want those things for themselves. We can't pressure them or force them. And we also have to honor, you know, every culture has its own way of doing things and honoring those differences, I think is a very important piece as well. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think also just that piece of uh, honoring people's journey. You know, everyone's yes. on their own journey. And it really is beautiful to just uh, sit in a space of just acceptance, of just accepting everything as it is um, and people as they are. Um, and I think relationships are, are such a great container for us to really also see a mirror of, of who we are, right? Like, I think that's that's the most interesting thing. It's like, 
what, whatever's showing up in our relationships is really just like a mirror of our own judgments and maybe our own insecurities. And, you know, what we maybe judge in others is what we attract into us. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's just interesting. Um, so Sylvie, I'd love to also talk about like how relationships have changed since the pandemic. Like, how do you, Mm. how do you sort of imagine things will also continue to change? I would say the biggest thing that I, one of the biggest things I noticed within the relationship dynamic conversation is that, you know, when the pandemic first came up, everyone was most, I shouldn't say everyone, many people were terrified. I mean, we were in our fear mode, survival mode, and there was a lot of rigidity in our own thinking. You know, we all kind of resorted to our survival protective mechanisms in many ways. Obviously, some people are naturally more resilient in working through things in in community settings, and some people can isolate. Um, So I think it was hard for people to be empathic towards each other. Like we all kind of, again, I want to be mindful, not we all, many people um, were very rigid about their way of seeing the world and this is right. People were going through the grief stages. There was a lot of people in denial. I mean, there's still people in denial. You know, there's so much grief, anger, um, sadness. And I know I work from an attachment framework where I saw like people became really hungry to, you know, feel safe. Some people wanted to isolate and it all forced us to think about death and what we want our new future to look like. So I saw a lot of couples end relationships during this time, or at least I saw them having, if they didn't end, I saw a lot of relationships having to restructure themselves because people were in many ways forced to think about their future. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, here we are. Like, how do I want the rest of my life to look like? There's so much loss happening around us, potentially, you know, in my circle, in my family, in my own life. And um, I think things have changed. We've had a little more time collectively to, to know what the pandemic experience has been like. So that rigidity, I'm seeing it softening. Some people are still in that rigidity, but I think I'm seeing a little bit of that softening, a little more ability to tolerate different viewpoints, you know, and how to handle safety precautions. And it was a really challenging time. My goodness, for all of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And what what do you think is like, one of the most important pieces um, in, you know, cultivating longevity in a relationship um, or just like a successful, healthy balance in relationship, like of all the things that you have personally experienced and, you know, what you've seen with couples, um, how do we, you know, how do we move forward? I think also just the way that things are playing out, it feels like people are moving towards or in the desiring to move towards more of like spiritual partnership, partnership mm-hmm. between equals, um, where this is kind of like the first time in the history of humankind that we're like mm. moving towards this space uh, where we do want like kind of equal um, distribution of of power, respect, you know, feelings, all that um, between two people. And also, how do you keep the polarity? You know, if that's mm. if that's the case. Such a big question. I'm like, where do I where do I dive into that one? Let me see. Yeah. Okay. Pick, pick whichever pick whichever you know thread you want to. I know that was a lot. It's okay, I'll, I'll weave my way into there, Yasmin. Okay. Um, well, you know, I love Esther Perel's framework around modern day relationships and how you know we used to turn to religion and spirituality for our sense of enlightenment and to you know self actualization, and now we're turning towards romantic love, and I think that's very much true. Like, there's never been as much pressure, as she says, on romantic love as there is today for to meet all of our needs, right? To meet our spiritual needs, our physical needs, our sexual needs, our emotional <laughs> needs. And I think there, it's really important to, uh, yes, have the, the core, you know, make sure there's an alignment in the core things that you want to create, but also to be tending to your own community as much as you can and your own sense of self and fu- your fulfillment in your own self, um, as far as polar, you know, that also helps with polarity is just being able to have um, that sense of self and being able to allow yourself to grow. And, you know, some relationships, no matter how much they make space for growth and change, you know, there can be a life crisis where someone changes so radically that they are not able to, they're literally no longer the same person. You know, they, they, that happens no matter how much we try to protect it or aim for longevity. But I do think for longevity in general, I think one of the hardest things is 
you know, finding a way to navigate transitions as best as you can, making space for transitions, the little and the small ones. You know, my husband and I just moved from LA to Austin in January. And I would say it was probably one of the biggest stressors on our relationship because it was not just the move, everything that came with the mood. I mean, I have anxiety. So it brought up all the things and, you know, making that okay, like making that allowing for those difficult things to be part of the experience and knowing that when you're in a long-term relationship, transitions can be um, a huge source of stress. So what are we going to do about transitions? How are we going to navigate that? What are we, you know, do we need to get professional support? A lot of couples wait until it's too late. They're not willing to acknowledge that there's something difficult happening in the relationship and they don't want to face it or one person might and another person does not. Being open to getting support, you know, whether that's from elders, religious, spiritual communities, you know, mental health support. I'm trying to think what else in your within your question that might, um, you yeah. know, being as much of a collaborative team, trying to look for, I love the way Dr. Stan Tekken frames it, trying to look for win-wins as much as possible. You know, when you notice yourself going into self-protection mode, catch yourself as quickly as you can so that you are presenting things in a way that works for not just you, but those you're in relationship with. Um, I think that's a really, really huge one. And creating agreements. I think is, is, is really, really huge, right. To protect the relationship, but also to protect you from you. And Mm. that's probably one of the biggest and most surprising things that I discovered in relationships. Like I have to protect the relationship from my dark side, you know, from the parts of me that want to be, um, you know, just take care of my own needs or, or be selfish and, those things that could really, really harm and really creating agreements and an awareness of what those things are and being humble and open to feedback as much as you can. Mm, that's powerful. I love that. That was so a lot. That yeah, was a lot of information. So <laughs> I love that. The creating agreements, like that's so powerful. Cause I, you know, I think, um, I'd love to hear more about like how, like maybe another example of an agreement that is it an agreement with yourself or an agreement with your partner? Like how does that work? You can definitely have boundaries with yourself. Agreement with yourself would be like having a boundary with yourself. For example, I don't drink when with my partner. I, I, haven't, I haven't been drinking at all, but I have one of those really sensitive nervous systems that when I drink even a glass of wine, I all of a sudden become a very mean person to my partner. And it is very the opposite of how I tend to be. (laughs) And so as soon as I would have a beer, man, we would just dump it out. Like, nope, this is not, I'm not going to allow a stupid glass of wine to, you know, hurt our relationship for something so ridiculous. So that's a boundary I have with myself, but it's also an agreement we have in our relationship. Like that's just something that we do to protect the relationship. Another one, I'm trying to think of another one. Um, An agreement is like no name calling. You know, no matter how we're feeling about something, you know, we can express how we're feeling. We can be expressive in the way we emote it, but we do not resort to name calling. Mm. Obviously, you know, when I talk about this, I also want to reassure clients that, okay, sometimes shit happens. Like you reach your wits end and you, you say something that you deeply regret. And, you know, I'm not advocating for that, but I also want to normalize that, you know, when couples fight, they can feel like war and, and to not shame and judge yourself for that, but to really figure out what you need to do to take care of yourself. So that does not happen. If I'm feeling myself get activated, maybe what that means, instead of trying to continue this conversation, we stop, we leave the room. I leave the room. We create an agreement as we get to know ourselves and how our behaviors impact the relationship. Like, I'll give you another practical example. In the beginning of my relationship, I used to make threats to leave the relationship when we were fighting. That was horrible. It was a big no-no, but my nervous system would be so scared and activated that I felt so under threat, even though he wasn't doing anything dangerous at all. It was just, I was so afraid it was bringing up my own past fears. And so I would make that threat. And now, thanks to my couple's therapist... (laughs) You know, he's like, you can't do that, Sylvie. That's that's a no, that's a no-go. You will harm your relationship. So that's another kind of agreement. Like, what are some of the behaviors you do during conflict that will harm your partner or your relationship that you need to be vigilant about? 
that you need to be really, really hyper activated to, or what are the things you need to work on repairing really quickly so that things don't continue to get stuck in your long-term memory in your relationship? Mm, that's powerful. Thank you so much for these examples. That's really, really, I, I actually was just thinking, I was like, oh yeah, I always threatened to leave. <laughs> that's <laughs> definitely my, I think uh, growing up um, with just a lot of intergenerational trauma from, mm. you know, especially what had happened in the Middle East, I think there is like this like fight or flight like I don't feel safe. It really comes down to feeling safe, right? Like, absolutely. And whatever is happening is like, oh, I don't feel safe, and I'm going to react. Um, and I think it's just so interesting if we can just be honest about that piece. And I, I'm always, you know, I just got back from Burning Man, and I've been so interested, like, Aww. you know, how you know women. Uh, I think I read this stat that like in romantic relationships of the murders that happen towards women, fifty percent mm-hmm. of it or more is actually done by their partner you know, their male partner, which is crazy. Right. And so it's so interesting to me because, you know, I think it's, I think it's just fascinating, like how, um, you know, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, how men can't understand why women wouldn't feel safe. You know what Mm. I mean? I'm like, this is just data. It's just straight data. There's just a lot of um, statistics that just prove that a lot of women don't feel physically safe, emotionally safe in relationships today. And there's a meme, there's a kind of a cultural morphic field and meme that we have to really like, you know, it's there, it's in the background, even if it's not present in our personal relationship, it's there for a lot of women. And we feel it in our sisterhood. We feel it when we hear stories about the way we're treated or that certain women are treated um, in relationships. And and so it's just interesting to me when, uh, you know, um, and I'm just, you know, kind of speaking anecdotally, but when a man feels threatened, I'm like, uh, <laughs> mm. walking a day in a woman's shoes, you, you know, you can't even imagine how much fear we would feel in one day, like walking to our car, um, yes. getting home late at night. And I just think, I just want to like actually underscore that point for people who are mm. listening, who, um, don't understand, you know, why, uh, why women feel so afraid? We 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 feel afraid, and rightly so. And I th- and I think it's it's both of our jobs really to um, to to create a container that actually earns that level of safety. It doesn't just take it for granted, right? I think that's is such an important piece that I would actually I love that you brought that up because I would add that to the longevity conversation that we just had. What are the privileges you hold in your relationship, and make darn effort to believe that that is real for your partner. So whether that's, you know, gender, right? Male, you know, patriarchy and what, you know, male privilege, whether that's racial privilege, whether that's economical, financial privilege, those gaps are going to show up in your relationship somehow. And if you don't talk about them, they're going to be like an undercurrent in some form or they can build resentment if they're not addressed and validated. Mm. So like if you're in a male-female dynamic, like you just said, like for a man to be understanding of that fear. I remember my husband shared with me early on that he went to a Tony Robbins workshop and he does this apparently in all his trainings, I don't know, that he asked the woman in the room, how many times a day do you feel unsafe? I think like the whole room had their, all the women had their hands raised. And then he asks the men in the room and there's like, you know, there's definitely some, but the gap is mind-blowing. But that's like a practical way of just like highlighting exactly what you just said. So like men can really see how real this is for women. Right. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for that example. I actually remember hearing about that example too. And it's just, yeah, it's just mind blowing, you know, the, it's sad. I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just, uh, it's mind blowing. And, and yeah, every day I, I mean, I, uh, every day there's a level of fear that I feel. And I think, I feel like I'm a pretty strong uh, individual and, uh, know my rights, you know, but yes. even then it's just, uh, it's, it's still there. It's, it's pervasive. Um, and being a Middle Eastern person in America, there's a lot of things, right, you know, there's, right. there's many layers to these conversations. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, it's also, it takes up extra mental and emotional bandwidth and space, right. That like, Absolutely. if you were, if you were in a, a space of privilege, would not take up. Right. And so it's just being aware of that, which has just been interesting, um, you know, relationally. So, but Sylvia, I want to talk about what sort of things have surprised you the most on this journey. Hmm. I, I, I touched on it a little bit, which was really the piece about how much humility 
And openness is required to be in a committed relationship. Like the level of humility that's required to take, you know, to take responsibility for the ways we hurt people. It's really easy to get locked into the dynamic where, you know, they're doing everything to me, you know, and blame and criticism, but it's a lot harder to really take that time to explore what are the ways that I contribute to the pain in my relationship? What are the ways I'm actually not a good listener? What are the ways I'm actually, and again, this is not to depress people out there. <laughs> I know I'm highlighting a lot of my pain points in, in my own relationship, but that has been really freeing for me to be able to hold those parts of myself without falling into a bucket of shame, right? And to have a partner who also, to have um, that ability for people to be, um, re- to be re- reciprocity and that willingness to take responsibility and that relationships are a dance. Unless there's abuse happening in the relationship, everyone in the relationship is contributing to something. And even if one person is 90% accountable for the thing, if the other person can just take 10% responsibility, and I actually, you know, John Gottman speaks about this in the relationship with men and women. For men, if a woman can take responsibility for even just 10% of something, because men tend to also carry a big burden and a big load for wanting to like just hold a lot of that mental load in a relationship as well. So even just to be able to, to share the accountability in certain situations can be incredibly helpful. Mm, that's so so cool. that's been surprising for me, the hum- how much humility and accountability is required. Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful, Sylvie. Thank you. Of oh, course. So we're actually coming at time. I feel like I have so much to, so many more questions to ask you, but I feel like this was so powerful for a lot of people listening who are in relationships. Yay. And We'll um, do a round two, Yasmin. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. I still want to take a couple of your other courses because I just thought the boundary one was so excellent. Mm. So we'll leave that, a link to that in the show notes. And what do you want to tell our listeners about their, you know, relationship wellness? Like what's sort of your main takeaway? My main takeaway, um, I think the biggest thing is there's so much we can prepare for and anticipate for and red flags and green flags and boundaries. There's so much we can, education we can, we can fill our brains up, which is so important. And nothing is ever going to compare to the real life nitty gritty and messy experience of being in an actual relationship and how much you can learn about yourself through, like you said, through the mirror of being in partnership with people and allowing yourself to, um, be open to things about yourself that you don't see because those mirrors point to things that is impossible for you to see about yourself and how relational, um, that relational piece contributes so much to your own sense of fulfillment and growth and all the things. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Thank you, Sylvie. And where can people find you? Is there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, your work, your courses? Absolutely. My biggest hub right now would be my Instagram page where I share daily relationship content. Um, also my website, which is sylviekukasian.com. I have some free resources. I have a free boundary scripts for if you want to help, if you need support with setting boundaries with family. Um, and then I have a free book list. If you want some of the, my favorite books, you can download that as well. And um, I have all my courses on my website as well. You can find which is, there's a, there's quite a range for relate for relationship stuff. Amazing. Oh, amazing. Sylvie, thank you so much for your time. This was so lovely. It was just also so nice to get uh, another like kind of cultural context to this relationship mm. conversation. My absolute pleasure. Such a, such a joy to be able to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Yasmin, for having me. Oh, thank you so much. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about how to create healthy relationship dynamics and boundaries with Sylvie Bugassian. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality.